This is Periodically Political, brought to you by Elect STEM. We bring you stories of where science intersects politics. My name is Chris Caputo, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Monica Stoller. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Phil DeLuna, who is a scientist and carbon tech innovator turned first-time candidate for political office. He is currently on leave from the National Research Council of Canada, where he led a $57 million Canada-made clean tech program. Dr. DeLuna is an award-winning scientist and has published a number of papers in high-impact journals such as Science and Nature. He was a Carbon XPRIZE finalist, a Forbes Top 30 Under 30, as well as a host of a podcast similar to this about science and behavior. Uh, So Phil is currently the Green Party of Canada candidate for Toronto St. Paul's and is running to bring more diversity to Parliament and more science to politics. So welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. So as I kind of alluded to in the introduction, you know, at ElectSTEM, we want to hear stories of scientists who've made that leap. And so, you know, our first question to you is just, can you walk us through why you're taking the leap uh, from the lab to running for office right now? Yeah, I'm kind of like in midair right now, right? Leaping, leaping into the leaping into the unknown. Um, I think like a lot of folks over the past year for the pandemic, it's given us time to reflect and think about our place in the world. I, I know I have. And I've spent my entire career working on technology and development and research and science. And I came to the realization that these are important and critical pieces to the puzzle. They're necessary, but they're not sufficient especially when it comes to solving big, complex problems like climate change. We really need policy as well, and we need governments to step in. I think we've seen that in the last year. Governments can act fast, and they have acted to, to the pandemic. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're facing a summer where a lot of folks in Canada, thankfully, we're, we're privileged enough to have vaccines, and um, we may get back to some semblance of normality soon. Well, climate change is... The ultimate long-term shock, just as COVID-19 was the ultimate short-term shock, just as threatening, if not more, to our existence, and also has lagging indicators, right? Like just how deaths are lagging indicators of COVID-19 infections, temperature rise is a lagging indicator of carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I felt in, like with a lot of folks, you know, is this the best place where I can be making the most impact as, uh, as quickly as I can? And I need to be trying to do as much as I can now because this is the decade that we need to act. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young. I don't have a home yet. Um, you know, I don't have children. I am immensely privileged to be financially secure that I can take six months off work or however long to actually run. And there are many other people in my age or in my stage of life that, that don't have that ability. Right. Um, so I, I just feel a, an almost duty in a sense um, to, to do this and to try, and, and as I said earlier, you know, bring more science to politics. Oh, absolutely. And I think that resonates with a lot of our audiences. And thank you for taking that leap yourself. Um, so walk us through kind of, you know, a month before you made that decision. What's going through your mind, like the pros and the cons? Like, did you make a list when you were deciding to do this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of contemplation was had for sure, and I, I mean, I think the first question that you have to ask yourself is, why do you want to go into politics? Um, and then the second question is, what does success look like even if you don't win? So for me, 
as I said, I want to go into politics because I believe we need to increase diversity. And I mean every diversity in every sense of the word. Just because I'm Filipino-Canadian and an immigrant, I don't just mean racial diversity. Just because I'm a scientist, I don't just mean intellectual diversity. I mean diversity. Um, and then the, the second is I think we need more science in politics. And I, that was made so true by the pandemic. You know, you can have these amazing science panels. You can have all of the science advice in the world. But unless government acts on that science, it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. So there's that missing link. Um the decisions that I made, uh, and I'm going to be very frank with you, right? Like I, I, I had to ask myself, you know, how would this impact my career? How would, um, what are the costs in running? Not just in financial costs, but also cost in my relationships, cost, uh, uh, opportunity cost, um, effort, mental mm-hmm. stress, all of these sorts of things. I had to weigh all that out. Uh, and ultimately, the, the number one thing I had to do was have a conversation with my partner, my fiance, Danielle. Um, she's a nurse. She works at SickKids. She works in the operating room. She has been at the front lines of this pandemic. Um, and it was a surprise to her when I initially said, hey, I'm thinking about running for politics. She's like, you've never really thought about this or talk- spoken about this before. <laughs> and, it, you know, you don't even to the ones closest to you, the people who think about politics aren't really public about it or vocal about it. It's something that is a very in- internal and personal decision. And so it, a lot of the time I spent convincing her, I was also convincing myself, you know, explaining if I didn't do this, would I regret it? What are the ramifications if I do do this? You know, and I felt quite frankly, running for, for example, the Green Party would be less of a, you know, stamp on my name than necessarily running for the conservatives or the liberals or the NDP. And if I wasn't successful, no one is going to blame a 29-year-old clean tech innovator for running for the Green Party in the same way they may blame me for if I ran for one of the other parties. And that may sound, you know, a little opportunistic or a little bit strategic, but these are the kinds of questions you need to ask yourself when you make this decision. And I'm, I'm being very honest and, and upfront with this. You know, I, um, I also felt that with the Green Party, I could make a bigger impact right away mm-hmm. than necessarily with, the, with other parties. I felt that I could, um, I'm, I'm a bit of an impatient person. Like I want to see change re, uh, uh, right away, right? And yeah. um, I felt that the Green Party was a place where I could do that. Uh, and of course, the, like this goes uh, in addition to above and beyond all of the, um, the, the values of the Green Party, what it stands for. I, I absolutely believe climate change is the most urgent um, issue that we have to face. I, I absolutely believe that we need to think about uh, inequality uh, and social and economic inequality and how do we address that? How do we address affordable housing? How do we address supporting our, our essential workers? So uh, anyway, that was a bit of a long-winded answer and I probably answered a few of your questions in it. But yeah, those are a few of the questions I asked myself before I ran. No, that's great, Phil. And now that you've gone through that step to make the decision, can you tell us a bit about the nomination process or if you were involved with the Green Party previously sort of you told us how you picked the Green Party, but were you involved mm. with them previously? And what was their nomination process like? Yeah, I, so I was never uh, politically engaged at all until I, I decided to run for office. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Like maybe you need to be a little bit naive and um, go into things with fresh eyes. Um, and because and, and, on one on one way, right? Like if you're if you don't know necessarily what you're getting into, you have a sense of um, confidence in that because you're. Uh, 
you almost don't know what you're about to get into. But at the other side of things, like of course, um, you you should do your homework and be prepared and understand what what, what you're what you're doing. Um, so the the way that this happened, my story goes like this: Last year, I was an Action Canada fellow. Uh, Action Canada is a public policy accelerator program. It's been around since 2003. The idea is that you bring together um, professionals uh, or, or leaders in their careers in their sort of early to mid career. And it's a leadership building um, program. You go around and do study tours around the country. At the end of the year, with a task force, you build a task force report on some sort of policy issue. Ours was on how do we lower the barriers for new entrants into agriculture. The name of our report was growing the crop of the, growing the next crop of Canadian farmers. Um, through that program, I'm another one of the members was another one of the fellows was a good friend of mine, uh, Gabby uh, Bouchard. Uh, Gabby was the EDA um, president or exec for the GPO, Green Party of Ontario. But because the um, Green Party is, is a relatively smaller party, the federal and the cons- the, the um, provincial uh, EDAs are kind of really linked and they share resources. Um, so I, I met her through that program. And then I also had an opportunity to meet Annemie Paul because Annemie Paul, was, uh, who's the leader, was a the um an alumni of the action canada fellowship and so uh that was my first introduction to the green party i didn't know much about the green party you know like like many people who are thinking or who don't know much about the green party they go it's a one issue party it's a bunch of um hippies or whatever (laughs) uh in birkenstocks and then i came to realize no it's a it's a deeper party than that they were one of the first parties to propose universal basic income um for, for many many years the the first parties to propose um net zero and climate targets uh they have a, a party that prides itself on being evidence-driven. At, during the leadership contest, there were a lot of scientists who ran and got really far in that leadership contest as well. So it, it really felt like a, an interesting party um, for me to explore and understand. And one of the, the things I really like to uh, and continue to like about it is that they don't whip votes in their caucus, meaning that a member of parliament can vote for their constituents. They don't necessarily have to vote for their party or with their party all the time. They can be, uh, you know, and, and, you know, whether a, a, a community or a, a constituency doesn't necessarily agree with how the party votes, that doesn't matter. And I think that's really important that you should have that internal debate and, and uh, members of parliament should be encouraged to vote uh, how they feel is right. So all of these things, um, whether it's democratic renewal, whether it's environmentalism, whether it's uh, progressiveness in terms of social equality in the in universal basic income, uh, these are all things that attracted me to the Green Party. As I learned more and more about it, I, I started to realize that there's so much more to this than just, you know, hippies and Birkenstocks. <laughs> so a couple of days ago, at the time of this recording, it would have been a couple of days, you announced your campaign and you had your campaign launch. How is the Green, Green Party supporting your campaign? That's a good question. Um, again, b- because the Green Party is a smaller uh, party, a lot of what I've been doing has been very independent. Um, we haven't really gotten much support from the Green Party Central. Uh, the way I like to describe it, I'm sure you've described it in your podcast a million times, but the way I describe the EDA and like the Central Party is like a McDonald's franchise, right? So the EDA is the McDonald's franchise in Toronto, St. Paul's, and corporate headquarters is uh, the GPC, 
because it is a grassroots party and because it's a relatively small party and doesn't have necessarily all of the resources that the other parties have, it, it's not yet at official party status. And at official party status, there are all additional resources um, that come with that, uh, additional staff and, and, and salaries and all these sorts of things. So we haven't, I haven't actually really gotten much support, like direct support from the Green Party. But that's okay, because it means that um, we can run an independent and um, highly creative, highly energetic campaign. I'm doing some really cool things. And, uh, you know, my team, my, my campaign team uh, and our, our volunteer set, are, um, we have a lot of scientists, a lot of engineers, a lot of um, technology folks on the campaign. So we're utilizing technology, data analytics, and a lot of things that I, I, I think are, are quite advanced. Um, um, you know, integration of, of uh, software as a service tools in new ways and combining them. Um, so we haven't gotten much support, but that's not necessarily a, a bad thing um, either. Yeah, no. So so given that the Green Party is very small and not as financially equipped as some of the other parties in Canada, can you sort of walk us through your fundraising tactics? We know as scientists, we often apply for grants. Can you draw any parallels? Would grant, grant applying help anyone in the political funding realm? Probably not, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. Because, you know, grant writing, it's like it's, you, you write a grant. It's, on, it's, based on, um, it's, it's based on evidence. It's based on your writing on data. And uh, oftentimes, by merit, you, you get that money. And there's normally enough to go around. I would say it's actually quite different when political fundraising, political fundraising, it's less about the content and more about you as a candidate, you as a person. It's you don't write anything to ask for money. You call someone up and you ask them for money. Right. So I would actually say that raising money for a campaign is, is more similar to raising money for a company, like creating a startup. Um, in fact, I actually I just wrote an op-ed in, in the Bay Street Bold about this. Uh, check it out if you want to, leader, re, uh, listeners out there, about how um, running for office is just like starting a clean tech uh, uh, company. For example, um, you know, like a, in a, a clean tech company, you're you're small, you're scrappy, you're going up against a massive incumbent energy companies that have all of the resources in the world, right? Does it sound familiar? Yeah, <laughs> we're I'm a I'm a small. Um, First-time candidate going up against this huge um, monolith of the Liberal Party in the riding, um, you know, and it's just, it's crazy. So, yeah, fundraising. <laughs> I'm sorry I went on that tangent about how um, fundraising is for a campaign is just like raising money for a startup. But I think it's a very, very uh, apropos comparison. And um, so I will say, like, specifically for the campaign launch, it... it we raised uh, after that campaign in total. The campaign now has twenty four thousand dollars in in raising. But when I started, the EDA had uh, around ten thousand dollars in the bank from the last election, and so in total we have around thirty to thirty four thousand dollars, which is incredible um, for this EDA. I think it's the most that it's ever raised. And um, for the listeners out there, I'm sure you've already talked about this, but. Uh, you need typically around $100,000 to run um, a campaign. And that's 113, I think, is the, the limit, the fundraising limit for this writing. Um, but uh, I, so when it comes to the, the similarities between fundraising in academia and fundraising for a campaign, they're, it, it's, it's extremely different. They're almost on opposite ends of the spectrum. And fundraising for a campaign is very much events-based and call-to-action-based and very personal-based. So when I say events-based, our virtual campaign launch, um, we had a Dutch auction. 
And the way that a Dutch auction works is you start off at your highest amount. And we say at 1650, this is the highest amount that you can pledge. This gets us two weeks of office space. Who wants to jump in at 1650? And then someone will jump in at 1650. And then we go down. And then, um, so the next is, okay, at 1200, this is how much. At 1000, this is how much. And then as you keep going down, you start to build momentum, more people start donating. And then at the end, we announced the, the sum total. And that was a really fun and exciting way to do. Um, so it, it's like a reverse auction and a, a really fun way to do fundraising. Uh, that's one piece of it. And then you, uh, that's a, like a, a larger event. Then you can do micro events. Like we're planning like movie nights or like a Twitch party or things like that. These are smaller things that you can try to do and be a little bit more creative with. And then the other side of that is um, making a list of all of the people in your um, circle and in your, in your close circle, your connections that could donate, maybe able to donate and then like calling them. Like the first thing as you do as a candidate and I had a conversation with Diane Sachs about this, who's the deputy leader for the Green Party of Ontario and the former environmental commissioner for uh, Ontario. Um, and she's an amazing person. She's a lawyer, um, extremely competent. She's going to make an amazing uh, MPP. And, and what she did, is she spent like like the first 35 or 40 days of, of her being a candidate, calling people, asking them for their support and for funds. And that's kind of what you have to do. You have to either ha- host events or call people and ask them for money. And that can be awkward. You have to work through that. It, it, it's it's tough. Some people that you think will donate money won't. Some people that you don't think will donate money or you didn't consider will just come out of the blue and donate a lot. And um, the, the number one thing you have to do is remind people that whether you donate or not, like that doesn't change our relationship. Like, I, I, and, and that should be true. You should absolutely remember that People are supporting you and you should be thankful for anything that they give you regardless. And if it's money or if it's time or if it's a tweet, it all matters. It all matters. Um, and then, and then not, and then also don't take it too personally if you're not hitting your fundraising targets or if, if you feel like you're not fundraising a lot. Uh, another way that running for office is just like, you know, being, we're starting a company like a clean tech startup. You know, you have to build your own team, you have to fundraise, you have to um, deal with vendors, you know, like whether you're getting a vendor to build a pilot plant or buying some signs, it's the same thing. Uh, and and the, the biggest sort of difference, though, is that you are your own product. And that's really scary, right? Like to put yourself out there. It's your ideas that people are, quote unquote, buying or voting on. And and so you, you always have to remember to not take it personally if things don't go your way. And especially when you're fundraising, when you're reaching out to people asking for support, when you're asking for endorsements, because um, it can be tough. And as a, and it's especially true in science, you know, like because th- that's the, the the context that we're coming from. So you would expect that you know other scientists or other people in your network would support you, would give you money, whatever. Actually, scientists are like allergic to politics. They like hate it. They're scared of it. They think it's like if I get involved in politics, then it, like compromises my integrity or whatever. Um, I, I actually, I just posted, I, I wrote another op-ed about this specific topic with, um, Professor Mark Lottens from the University of Toronto and Katie Gibbs, who's running for MPP for the Liberal Party in Ottawa Center. So, uh, exactly about why we need to lower, change that culture in science on supporting, um, people who want to get into politics and not be scared to engage. Um, anyway, sorry. So (laughs) that's fundraising. There was so much to digest in there, but it's all great information it's so important i think the the calling is something that a lot of us need to get over or work mm-hmm. on 
just phoning people up and asking for money. It's so different than applying for a grant. So, you know, and, and, and maybe I'll ask a quick two second follow-up or you, you say two lines on this, Phil, how did you adjust to that? What best practices for making those phone calls did you, did you take to get comfortable doing that? That's a good question. Cause I don't feel like I've fully adjusted to it. It's still awkward for me. Um, you, you just, just have, wing it. You just wing. Yeah. You kind of have to wing it. Honestly, you cut, you, you, you have to know what your values are and why you're running. And you just have to explain that to the person that's listening on the other end. And once they know why you're running, um, that usually resonates with people. If your reasons are good and if they're genuine and they align with the person you're talking to, they will support you. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So you mentioned in that last answer as well, a lot of tidbits that I think I'm going to try to expand upon here. Um, you said that some people in the scientific community seem to be allergic to politics. Um, can you tell us, like, in general, like, how has the response been from the broader scientific community? I know you have a ton of professional, like, you have a huge professional network. Like, what's the feedback been like from the scientific community since your announcement? Yeah, no, the scientific community, it's been really interesting, the response from the scientific community. I feel like a younger generation of scientists who are more politically engaged and active and who are open to the world beyond academia and look at how science can be impacted, uh, impactful in many different areas of our society are extremely supportive and they're excited and they, um, you know, are, they think what I'm doing is, is, is inspiring and all that stuff. And I'm so humbled by the response. I think there's an older uh, generation of scientists, more established people in their careers who are a little bit more um, reluctant to publicly acknowledge or to publicly support, but we'll do so in private. And I think a lot of that is a culture of, um, well, if I, if I seem political, will that impact my grant funding? If I seem political, will that you know, impact the uh, uh, collaborations I'm able to do? Will that impact the internal politics within my department? Um, people immediately look at politics in a negative light because how can you not? Like there's so much polarization today and there's not enough collaboration that um, I don't blame people, especially established uh, um, uh, scientists who have seen how politics has evolved over the years and has seen how the relationship with science and politics has evolved over the years through the Harper era into the Trudeau era, Trudeau era and even before that um, are, 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 are scared, you know, are not they don't necessarily want to be public about how, how they feel politically. And I don't blame them at all, you know, Um so it's been an interesting, it's been interesting to see the response and it's really a, a difference along generational lines. Yeah, the generational lines thing is quite interesting. Um, and maybe we can dig into that a little bit more and, and like kind of thinking about, you know, how can we, you know, we, we're, we're doing a good job or it's seemingly we're, we're becoming more engaged. The younger scientists are becoming more engaged. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier with the urgency of some of the issues at hand that is driving a lot of this and, you know, like evidence for democracy when they came out really catalyzed a lot more engagement, mm -hmm. but you think about our training, right? You did your PhD at the university of Toronto. Um, it's very, is there a way we can almost, you know, reimagine how we can engage um, graduate students earlier on and, you know, almost, prime the next generation and beyond to continue to be engaged uh, in politics or in political matters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, 
the way I'm going to answer this question is may seem a little roundabout, but I'm going to start with a politically charged statement, which is, I think um, there are parts of the academic system that are broken. <laughs> and when I say this, I mean that um, the culture in academia, especially traditionally, has been as a student or as a trainee or a graduate student, if you don't continue in academia, you're, you failed. And I can understand mm-hmm. why that's the case, you know, especially um, the incentives for professors are to pr- proliferate and create more professors, right? It, it, it increases their, their, um, their reputation, their notoriety, their influence within their academic sphere and influence. There are not necessarily enough incentives for graduate students to think about life beyond academia. Um, mm-hmm. There are not enough incentives or training to think about how their science can be used and, and impacted in terms of policy, in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of industry, in terms of advocacy, in terms of nonprofit organizations. Th- there aren't enough opportunities for graduate students to explore and do these things. And the system doesn't reward that. So I think I was immensely, immensely privileged to be under the tutelage of a professor who valued a closeness to industry, who valued um, application of science in the real world, who valued um, organizational structure and being able to empower his students to explore and do things um, uh, that go beyond traditional academic uh, activities. That is rare. That is extremely rare. And I am Mm -hmm. a product, like what I'm able to do today and, and the, the, the drive I have to make an impact in all these different spheres of influence in my life is because of the support I had in my PhD to try things that went beyond my academic research. So the number one thing that we can do to get more people involved, not only in policy, but in other things, is to change that culture that academia and graduate students are only for producing more professors. Maybe that was the case before, but that is no longer the case today. The numbers are not yep. there. There are not enough professor positions to for all of these PhDs that you're that you're graduating. So right. let, let's there's not enough research funding either. There's not enough research funding either. So we need to <laughs> we need to you know broaden the graduate um, education experience. Like of course science and research and development is at the heart of it, but there are so many more ways we can break down into silos and apply those skills in other sectors, and we need to start doing that. You think sort of in this day and age that it would almost be more valuable to have a variety of grad students come out who go into different fields, also expands your connections, because that's sort of, at least for someone who works with um, academics, that's kind of where the funding is actually sort of moving now, Mm -hmm. that they're going to fund more variety than they used to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. During my PhD, I uh, did internships every summer. I finished my PhD in, in, in three years and four months. And every summer I went away for four or five months. The first summer I went to IBM in New York at the TJ Watson Research Center. The second summer I went to UC Berkeley in the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. And the third summer I went to Toyota Research Institute um, in, in Palo Alto. Each of those internships were not that related to my PhD research or my thesis. And yet my professor still saw the value in me going because what does it bring? It brings connection to the institute that I'm going to. It, I learn new things at that, at that uh, internship that I can bring back and then train the lab with new skills, new ideas, et cetera. And it also um, prepares me as a student and the, the group uh, for uh, potentially getting more funding, potentially increasing its impact in new areas and, and revitalizing new ideas. 
that is, uh, it, it, it takes, you know, a culture shift to think about, I'm not losing a student, I'm gaining an ambassador. And that is, that is something that needs to, that, that I think a lot of uh, professors are scared to, to even think about. And I don't blame them, right? Because especially if you're not, like my, my PhD supervisor was very well funded. He had a massive group. If one student left to go do these, you know, like adventures, it, it, it's not that big of a deal. Um, for a smaller group, a young professor, where they need every single person, like hands on deck, that can be a little bit more difficult. But there are other ways that professors could train their students to have these other skills. You can, in my PhD, my um, PhD supervisor delegated a lot of the work that a professor does to us, right? Like, you can have them help you build your websites, build, uh, help you with grant writing, help you with um, uh, 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 collaboration outreach, help you with thinking about uh, uh, encouraging to write op-eds or get involved in uh, other organizations, right? It doesn't just because it doesn't just have to be having a student leave. And I'm sorry, I know this is a political podcast, but I'm I'm just I'm very passionate, very very passionate about um, how we need to revitalize and revolutionize the way that we do academic training in this country or in in the world. Um, anyway, so <laughs> that's my answer. No, that sounds like an amazing PhD experience. And like while you said this is sort of a political podcast, it is important for our non-political listeners to hear these stories. And that kind of leads me into the next story. Uh, next question is, what sort of advice would you have for politically curious scientists and engineers? What would you tell them now that you've sort of experienced this? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things you can do. And it, it depends on the level of intensity and the kind of politics on policy that you want to get into. You know, if you want to, if you want to understand what it's like for, to be involved in a political campaign and partisan politics, which is very, very different than working on policy that you would at, for example, um, uh, the federal government or one of their line departments, then uh, you can volunteer for a campaign, volunteer for a party in your riding, wherever you live, and then uh, slowly get to see what that process is like. The process of how does our democracy work? How do we vote people into positions of power? And how do they make those decisions on, on the other side? So you can absolutely get involved in that way. Uh, another way is if, if it's not necessarily partisan politics you're interested in, but like how, like theoretically, how does politics work and how does democracy work? You can get involved with organizations like Evidence for Democracy, like um, a Fair Vote Canada, like um, um, uh, Green Green Pack, which is an organization that um, has green in the name, but is not affiliated with the Green Party. It's a cross-partisan. I know it's a little confusing, right? But I think they predated. Anyway, um, so you could do that. And then, and then if you're interested in like how policy is made, there are lots of ways you can do that too, right? Like you can add, like there are um, uh, policy fellowships that are coming online now uh, through MyTax. There's a recruitment of policy leaders program um, through the federal government. And Natural Resources Canada has their own policy recruitment fellowship program that you can look into. There's uh, programs like Action Canada that you can apply for um, that, that, that was amazing and really interesting in how policy is made. Um, you can start looking at like, what are the areas of policy that you're interested in? Are you passionate about affordable housing? Well, then go volunteer for an affordable housing nonprofit and figure out what the problems are. That will help you make good policy. Are you passionate about immigration? You know, are you passionate? What are you, what are you passionate about? Go find what you're passionate about and then start building on the ground experience in that thing. 
And that will help you whether you want to go into politics or go into policymaking. The most important thing you can bring to the table is your experience. I think that's really important to point out the sort of the motivation and how to get involved. Um, some scientists and engineers might still be a little bit hesitant because they're scared of the inevitable criticism that comes along with running for politics, being a politician, being in politics. Um, how would you sort of advise them there for that? Yeah, I mean, of course, I thought the same thing, right? And like a, a lot of the things that I did, in addition to coming to this decision was I spoke to a lot of people who have done politics in the past. You know, I had a conversation like a year and a half ago with uh, Jane Philpott. I had a conversation um, with uh, John Godfrey, who uh, was a a liberal minister and um, I knew him through uh, Massey College, which is a a graduate community at the University of Toronto. I I had conversations with people who were senior levels within the the federal government um, and, and worked at the interface you know, between ministers and deputy ministers, between the system, you know, the public service, and then the political system. And I asked that question, you know, like, what, what, what does it really mean? And what, how will this impact me? And a lot of people said, as long as you're true to yourself, and you explain why you're doing this, and you're, you're genuine, and you're honest, and you're authentic, then it, it almost doesn't really matter what um, what party you run for. It what matters more are the actions and how you carry yourself throughout that election. And you will be pushed, and it, you will be stressed out, and you will have to make crazy decisions, and you'll you'll it'll be ups and downs. But your character will shine through that. So whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it, it will shine through. And, and so the, the party and the label and the, the stigmatism around politics will all melt away because the most powerful thing that will shine through is who you are as a person. And I, I took, because um, it's, a, it's a life-altering and changing experience to do this. Like it's, this is not, you don't just wake up one day and decide I'm going to run for office and then and run for office. It's, it, it is like, it's intense. Um, and I, it's, I'm, I'm living it through it right now. And I don't, I wake up every morning and I, I am excited and I'm energized and I, I've never once regretted this decision. Never. Uh, despite all of the, um, all of the crazy things that are happening right now, even with the, the Green Party, um, themselves, you know? Uh, so to the people who say, uh, I'm worried about what this will do, um, to, to me after, I would say that's a legitimate concern. But you have to have confidence in yourself that you can weather that and that you and your own character and your own values will shine above any label. And if you don't have confidence that that's the case, then don't do it. Like, I don't want to encourage people to run for office if they, you know, like, I I know it's exciting. It sounds interesting, but you, you have to know that you want to do this and you have to know your values and know why you want to do it and know that, um, sure, this process will change you and it will improve you, but you will be you throughout it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big decision. I think that's a great answer and like a very insightful answer. And I guess it's not as scary as some people might think it is. Uh, Phil, I do want to thank you for being on the podcast today and taking the time to talk to us. I want to end the podcast on one inspirational statement that you'd like to give our listeners. One inspirational statement. Mm, that's a good question. Um. 
You know, I would, what I would, my inspirational statement is just do something. Just, just do something. I think a lot of people are, uh, especially, are can can feel limited by choice or are scared to make a decision, uh, which is fair and it's fine. But life is too short to not do something. <laughs> and I think the pandemic has shown us this. Uh, and I, I, if there's a silver lining, I have seen so much transformation in a lot of my friends and a lot of my personal uh, connections throughout this pandemic because it's given us the urgency, the impotence to do something. So whatever you're considering, uh, just take the action, take the time and do it. And if, if it doesn't work out, know that you can always do something else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... Just do, just, just do something. <laughs> Thank you so much, Phil, again, for the podcast and for those inspirational words. I think just the, just those three words might inspire a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I said this before we were recording, but I want to say it again for your listeners. I think what you're doing is so important. I, I'm thrilled at the traction that you've been getting, at the number of listeners, at the number of guests, and the quality of the guests that you've been having. Uh, the only way that we're going to get more scientists involved in politics is if we share these stories and if we have these voices at the table and if we show people that this is something that they can and should be encouraged to do. And one of the main reasons I'm running is to lower the barriers of entry, especially for underrepresented um, candidates, uh, non-traditional candidates, whether you know being a Filipino-Canadian, being an immigrant, being a young person, being a scientist... Uh, I, I I want everyone to know that we need more of you in office. We need more scientists, more nurses, more plumbers, more electricians, more teachers, more everyone. So um, yeah, I, I commend you for what you're doing, and I think it's amazing. And I'm I'm really thankful that you've had me on this podcast. Our pleasure, Phil. Thanks for joining. Thank you.